We are actually most of the way through Psalm chapter 119. We have about four Sundays left to go. And so I think it is good for us on a morning like this to remind ourselves of what Psalm 119 wants us to do. This chapter really wants the people of God engaged with the Word of God. Not just something that sits on the shelf, not just something that we sort of casually read from time to time, but the kind of thing that we can actually dive deep into and that can have its effect and power in our lives as it points us to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This entire chapter, again, is all about the wonder and the greatness and the power of the Word of God, and it's written so that we spend time with it, so that we're motivated to spend time with it. It is this piece of long-form poetry, and we've talked about that before, how this chapter is actually crafted. And so as a piece of poetry, it's intended to raise our vision and our eyes and even our imaginations about what the Word of God is and what it is able to do, how we can, as we've read over and over again, receive strength from the Word of God, even inside of our suffering, how we can find life instead of death and joy and hope inside of God's Word. You see, friends, disciples of Jesus Christ are intended to be engaged with the Word of God, body, soul, mind, and spirit. So being biblically illiterate is a travesty for the disciple. This is actually where we started when we opened up Psalm 119, and we, we talked about this bizarre sort of reality that we live in today, that we in the English-speaking world have this unprecedented amount of access to the Word of God, and yet when you survey people who carry the name of Christ, their understanding of Scripture is incredibly and shockingly low. Being biblically illiterate is a travesty for the follower of Jesus Christ. Because, guys, it's just part of human nature, we will naturally and easily spend time and effort and even money on the things and the people that we value. So Psalm chapter 119 is intended to build in us a value of the Word of God and its work in our lives. So here's a little bit of what we're going to read this morning. Inside of this first stanza, we're going to read that God's Word is wonderful. And this matter of wonder, I think, is just beautiful for us today. This wonder, as the psalmist reflects on it, it draws out longing in the psalmist. It draws out the desire for more light and for more understanding. The psalmist is drawn further into God's presence because of his wonder for the Word of God. We're going to discover that it even brings him to a point of what we're going to call sacred grief because of his wonder for the Word of God. You see, guys, God's Word is full of goodness, it's full of wisdom, it's full of life. And so we discover that it brings the disciple sorrow when the disciple sees it broken or neglected. In the second stanza that we're going to read this morning, this section um, has a theme, and the theme shows up very quickly, just even inside of the vocabulary as we read through it. It celebrates the righteousness of God. And as the psalmist talks about and reflects on the righteousness of God, it draws out zeal in God's disciple. We're going to discover that righteousness is a necessary character trait for God and His character. 
And the disciple here is going to be moved to celebrate it, to talk about it, to learn what it is and to learn how to live in the righteousness of God. So let's begin reading in Psalm 119, beginning in verse 129. Are you guys with me this morning? All right. Psalm 119, verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Your testimonies are wonderful. Because the psalmist has discovered this about the Word of God, come into this kind of encounter with God's Word and what with God's Word does, he says then, my soul keeps the Word of God. This is important vocabulary for disciples of Jesus Christ because we live in a, a kind of knee-jerk materialistic culture in which talk of soul and spirit often makes no sense or is derided or is even argued against, and yet the psalmist speaks easily of his soul. That thing is, that is at the very foundation, the very root of his character and who he is, his desires, his priorities, what his life is like. This is a lot of what is represented when we speak of our soul, and the psalmist says, I found your word wonderful. So it's not just something I filed away somewhere inside of my intellect and my mind, and from time to time I think about it. He says, at the very center of who I am, that's where I hold on to it. That's where I keep it. This is kind of this kind of powerful relationship that he has come, he, he's come to with the Word of God. So his wonder puts God's Word deep inside of his life. I like this thought. The testimonies of God, His Word, His Scripture, His law, His will, His ways, they are wonderful. We experience wonder on a visceral level. It is often something that we see and we absorb intellectually and our minds process it, but if you've ever experienced wonder, you know it's far more than that. It strikes us on an emotional level. It strikes us on this sort of visceral and responsive level. We open up our mouths and our jaws are agape, or we see something new and we're just amazed and we don't want, know what to say, but wow, this is awesome, this is wonderful. You see, it's far more than just this intellectual processing we experience on this powerful and deep and visceral level. Things in this world and this universe really are themselves wonderful, and then we come in contact with them, and that's what we experience. As I thought about this notion of wonder this week, it struck me, and I think this is really cool. I can't imagine a single kind of negative connotation to wonder or drawback to wonder itself because it arises within us, just these beautiful and wonderful things, and it attaches us to things and people, this sense of wonder. Guys, to see something as wonderful 
is often to be surprised or overwhelmed by the majesty or the beauty of something. To to experience wonder, to be surprised by the majesty or the beauty of something. Years ago, Heather and I um, went to go spend some time with some friends celebrating a graduation in Yosemite National Park. We spent a lot of time in the state of Colorado, and the state of Colorado is full of wonderful, beautiful things. But we'd never been in Yosemite before. I'd only seen pictures. We'd only seen videos of it. But as you start to drive into Yosemite and you dive into Yosemite Valley, and as you get in there and the trees sort of part and you see El Capitan or you begin to see the waterfalls, that's the kind of experience that you have is this sense of wonder. You're surprised by the grandness, the vastness of what you are seeing. And on that particular trip, we sort of meandered our way back home through I-70 in the state of Colorado, and you drive through Glenwood Springs Canyon, and we're thinking, this is just as wonderful as anything that we've seen. We stop in the mountains, and we hike around, and we're just, we're just in awe of the wonder of God as we go through the states, and we see all these beautiful things. Guys, it's a sense of wonder that we receive when we run into these things, and we might experience it in a moment. We are taken by surprise by something. We've never seen it before, and so it shocks us into wonder. But there's another aspect of wonder as well, that we might actually come to appreciate the wonder of a thing the more we study it, the more we understand it, the more we know it. The more we understand astronomy, the more we understand biology, and we recognize the forethought and the complexity and the intricacies of how these things work and what God has done, the more we know, the more we're drawn into the wonder of these things and the wonder of God. Now, it strikes me this way because I think the Word of God provides both of these kinds of wonder for us. That if we really are actually working through God's Word from time to time, no matter how often we've read it, worked through it, heard it, sung it, every now and then it just hits us and we're surprised. We see something about God. We learn something about what life with God can really be like. We learn something about the forgiveness and redemption or the glory and the majesty of God and we're just surprised by it. But then the Word of God also allows us to spend so much time with it that we learn more and more and more about the beauty and the majesty and the intricacies and the work and the glory of God. And the further we get into it, the more wonderful it becomes to us. And you see, this is part of the point of encountering the Word of God. Not that we worship the Word itself, but that the Word is intended to point us in the direction of the God of wonder. The more we know this, the more we're drawn into His presence. We're intended to experience Him as we experience the Word of God. Guys, ignorance never produces wonder. Ignorance never brings us to a point of wonder. I've never seen it. I've never read it. I've never known it. If we don't know this... If we're not spending time with this, we don't know God the way that we should, and we will not be able to say with the psalmist, your testimonies are wonderful. Ignorance never produces wonder. 
But the more we know God, the more wonderful He becomes. There's this song that Moses sings in Exodus chapter 15. It itself is a certain kind of psalm, and he's reflecting on what God has done. You see, he knows more and more about God, and he says this in Exodus 15 verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. See, this is a man who's getting to know God more and more, and as he does, he just explodes in praise. And he says over and over again, how awesome you are. There's no one like you. You perform magnificent wonders. And then there's, there are these moments of surprise in which we see how wonderful God is in what is probably the most surprising moment in all of Scripture The prophet Isaiah describes it like this, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. God sometimes surprises us, and our reaction to it is wonder at His glory. And as we think through wonder and we read the rest of this stanza, we're able to see some of these intellectual and emotional interactions that the psalmist has with this notion of wonder. He says, it is light to me. I find these things wonderful, so my soul keeps them. In verse 130, the unfolding of your words, the more I read them and I become aware of them, They give me lights. They impart understanding to the simple. I open my mouth because I long, right, for the things of God. The psalmist is interacting these things in powerful ways. He pants after God. He longs for God. And I like this description here. It imparts understanding to the simple. If you read the wisdom literature inside of the Old Testament, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job and parts of the Psalms, there are these characters that you run into, the wise person, the foolish person, the sloth, the sluggard, and the simple. Now, when we read that, we think, well, if I call someone simple, I'm not saying anything nice about them, right? But to be simple in wisdom literature is simply to be the kind of person who is still ready to be molded. They're not yet walking down the path of wisdom or of folly, but if they listen to folly, they're going to be molded into that shape. But if they listen to wisdom, they're going to grant, they're going to be given understanding and they're going to be molded into the shape of their God. And you see the Word of God does that to someone who is simple, ready to be shaped, And so the Word of God, as it unfolds and gives us light, it gives understanding to the simple. And in fact, in a very important way, all of us are in this kind of mold. Are we going to listen to the Word of God and wisdom and be shaped into this format? But This is what the Word of God does, is it gives understanding. It shapes the simple into the shape of God. And he says, and I open my mouth and I pant after God. What a beautiful image he uses. And this is not the only time the psalmist uses it. He uses it in Psalm chapter 42, beginning in verse 1, probably familiar to many of us. As a deer pants for flowing streams, right? The image is clear to us, even if we don't even, even if we don't explicate it in our minds as we read it. An animal that's walked through the wilderness is on the edge of starvation, is panting for something it needs. So this is what the psalmist says, I am alike when I come into the presence of God. 
As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me continually, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and a multitude-keeping festival, how I long for the presence of God. Did you notice this as well? How I long for the presence of the people of God, that we would be together and worship God and pray to God and be with each other in His presence. This is what I long for. As the psalmist continues inside of Psalm 119, the stanza that we've been reading, In verse 132, he begins to say stuff like this, Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. This is a prayer for God's attention to be paid to his people, a prayer that is prayed often in Scripture that God's eye would be upon his people. And what a powerful prayer for us, how in so many seasons of life we know that this is what we need. We would die if God's eye were turned away from us, if his hand was not involved inside of our lives. And so we pray with, us, with the psalmist, turn your eye to me, turn your attention to me. Do for me what only you can possibly do. This is a little bit like a child turning to a parent, needing that parent's loving attention paid to them. Turn to me so that I may see and know that you are here. This is the prayer of someone who needs work done for them that can only be done by someone else with more power and wisdom and resources than they have. I love this kind of prayer and how we're being taught to pray it with the psalmist. And inside of that, the psalmist keeps striking this note throughout this chapter, and it's good for us to recognize it. Let no iniquity have dominion over me. I don't want any more of that life. I want instead the kind of life that only God can give me. Last week's text, and if you look especially at verse 115, you'll see it. The disciple is longing for a holy life. He's longing that evildoers are out of his life. He's longing that evil itself is out of his life. He's praying, I don't want any kind of iniquity. This is sin. This is twistedness. I don't want any of that to actually rule over me or reign over me. I need the life of God. We put it like this from time to time, in part because the image struck me a long time ago, and it's stayed with me because it continues to have its effect on me. The kind of exchange that God makes, no one else would ever make. You see, what God is doing when He's exchanging my life for His is He's taking something that is small and broken and full of sin. He's taking that and He's giving me a life that is beautiful and glorious and full of forgiveness and majesty and life eternal. He's exchanging something that is, in this sense, worth less for something that is full of all of the worth possible. Oh, God, I don't want iniquity reigning in my life. I need instead the life that only you can give. It reminded me of a passage 
from the Apostle Paul when he's writing to the Romans and he's talking about this kind of thing, this, this tension that is within us and the desire, the prayer that the disciple has. This passage comes from Romans chapter 6. Beginning in verse 12, he says this, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members, your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members, your body, to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. I don't have the power necessary within me to overcome sin, so I need God's power to do that for me. What a powerful prayer. So there's this thing within me that I need gone. I don't need this iniquity inside of my life. And then there are these external conditions as well that the psalmist prays about. Redeem me from man's oppression. This is the kind of evil that falls into our lives because of the sin and brokenness and evil of other people. God, save me from brokenness and evil so that I may be with you and you alone. And notice this. Why do I want redemption or safety from the oppression or evil from other people so that I can live a long and happy life in an easy retirement, right? That's what the Hebrew nuance means, not at all. Redeem me from man's oppression so that I can keep on living for you. Did you notice that? That I may keep your precepts. That's why I want this. Freedom from sin within Freedom from the brokenness of others that brings evil into my life so that I can follow you with even more passion and zeal and clarity. I love that. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. This is what Charles Spurgeon calls sacred grief. I like that phrase. It is sacred grief. See, one of the reasons it was so important for us to sort of come to terms with the notion of what is wonderful to us is so that we can understand what the psalmist does at the end of this stanza. Because if something is wonderful to me, if something is valuable like that to me, if something is beautiful to me, and I find meaning and value and life in it, I'm also going to find heartbreak when it's treated as useless. When people look at your law and turn the other way, and I see the devastation that that brings inside of so many lives, I may actually begin to weep because the Word of God is wonderful to me. What the Word of God can do inside of your life, in my life, man, that's wonderful to watch. And when we neglect it, when we go the other way, when we refuse it, it actually begins to break our hearts. I'm not sure if I've ever told this story here um, on a Sunday morning or not. This is one of the reasons why senior pastors move from church to church every four to five years. They just run out of stories. So they have to go to the next place, and then they tell stories to them about you people. This is just kind of how the story, this is kind of how it goes. When I first felt the call into ministry 
It had a lot to do with this kind of thing. As I was a teenager coming up through high school, a handful of my friends were a year older than I was. And so in my senior year in high school, I watched a handful of them go off to college. And for some of them, it took two semesters for them to leave their faith in their church. For some of them, it took one semester at college for them to leave their faith and leave the church. And as a senior in high school, it shocked me. In fact, it shocked me into the ministry is what it did. <laughs> it pushed me into the kind of ministry that I got involved with in college ministry and young adult ministry and how important things like apologetics became to me because I watched so easily so many people walk away from the Word of God. You see, when something's valuable to us, it motivates us, it moves us, and sometimes it breaks our hearts. Notice the bookends inside of this stanza. Your testimonies are wonderful to me, so my soul keeps them. And the other bookend is this. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. This is going to be especially hard for the disciple if they watch the people of God devalue the Word of God. So the psalmist now is, is wrestling with wonder and what that is like, how we encounter God's Word and we see that, and, and that's how we respond to it, and then what that does to us when we see it neglected or broken or devalued. And as we move into the next stanza, the psalmist's wonder turns into zeal as he's going to talk now about the righteousness of God. So beginning in verse 137, it goes like this. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Righteous are you, O Lord. And if you're paying attention, you didn't need me to tell you that this is the theme of this chapter. This word shows up often. Some of your translations will use a mixture of righteousness or just or justice or your laws. But that word shows up over and over again. It shows up eight times in six of these verses. And so it shows up even a couple of times in a couple of these verses. Righteousness, biblically, itself is a fairly straightforward notion to be just or full of justice, to be lawful or to live according to the law itself is to be righteous, to be correct, to be morally right, the biblical notion of righteousness is both a legal and a moral notion. If someone lives up to the legal standard, then in that sense they are righteous. Or someone lives up to a life of moral integrity, in that sense that individual is leading a righteous life. And so biblically, we often read about or talk about how a king is righteous or unrighteous or just or unjust. And it's because an individual, any one of our rulers, or any of us might be considered righteous in this sense if we live up to the standard, legal or moral standard. 
But notice how even the language teaches us something if we live up to this standard. We're speaking of a law that is above you and me, God's moral kind of law. It's not dependent upon me, but I can live up to it or I can break it. And righteousness is living up to it. Now, this is important because you and I are beholden to that legal and moral standard. God is that standard. God is righteousness. This is critical, a critical difference between you and me. God and His Word are righteous. It is not the case that God is righteous because He adheres to some set of legal rules or norms or values that are good for us, and God obeys those rules too. That's not what we mean when we say that God is righteous. We mean that He is that standard. His character is righteousness. So you and I can be called righteous in this sense when we adhere to a just law, but even then only temporarily. Notice what the disciple says about himself in verse 141, I am small and despised. The disciple sees their place in the divine order of things, the divine scheme of things. But then notice this about God when we try to understand and grab a hold of His righteousness and what it means. God can never be called unrighteous. That's important. God can never be called unrighteous because it is part of His unchanging character that He is just and that He is right. So if that is who He is, then all that comes from Him is also right and true. So God's righteous laws are an extension of His perfectly good character. Here's how the psalmist puts it in 138. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness. All of the Word of God is right and true and just. The New Living Translation takes that first phrase in verse 138 and puts it like this. Your laws are perfect and completely trustworthy. I like that. Your laws are perfect and completely trustworthy. And so here's the reaction that this notion of righteousness pulls out of the disciple. He says in verse 139, my zeal consumes me. There are foes that forget your word, but your word has become wonderful to me. I've seen you as righteous. I recognize your law as righteous. So now zeal for you consumes me. I want to talk about this for a minute. This kind of zeal is the jealousy of love. In fact, some of your translations may not even use the word zeal there. It might use the word jealous or jealousy. Now, there's a way in which we can speak of jealousy when we're talking about the vice in which we despise someone else because they have something we want or we see something in them that we don't like and we've become jealous of them. That's just a vice and it's wrong on every conceivable level. That's not what this is, though this word in the Old Testament is translated either zeal or jealousy throughout the Old Testament over and over. This kind of zeal is a jealousy of love. So let's not be thrown by the word when we speak of this kind of jealousy because this is what we mean. 
This can be the kind of reaction that someone has when someone or something they love is done harm. I am jealous for the good of someone I love. And when they are walking in the wrong path, I am, I am zealous or I am jealous that they would begin to make right decisions. This is a biblical notion of this word. Or something is going wrong and harm is being done to them. And so I become zealous for or jealous for their well-being. And so I begin to act upon that. So in fact, if you track this down inside of Scripture, in the Old Testament, there are all kinds of legal provisions for the jealousy of a husband when his wife has done harm. They both then have legal recourse out of this kind of reaction because someone they love has been done harm. This kind of zeal or this kind of jealousy can also be in Scripture a sacrificial act done on behalf of someone who is loved someone who needs something done for them, we often may sacrifice ourselves in our zeal for them. There's this magnificent chapter in the book of Isaiah. It's chapter 37. And in that chapter, God is speaking to His people who are being judged and who are being sent into exile. But God then says, but I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to restore my relationship with you. God is talking about putting things back together for his people who are full of sin. And right in the middle of that chapter, Isaiah 37, verse 32, he puts it like this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The jealousy of God for his people will actually do this for you. So the disciples' zeal is a deep and motivating attachment to the righteous law of God. Our zeal is this motivating attachment to the righteous law of God. One of the reasons this concept struck me this week is because I believe that as we come to terms with what the psalmist says here about zeal, we're coming to terms with the opposite of what I think might be the most common sin in the life of the American Christian, and that is indifference. Complete and abject indifference. Ignorance of the Word of God breeds indifference about the things of God. But relationship with it, as we're discovering, breeds zeal for the Word of God. It's going to motivate me to actually do something with it, in it, because of it, in this world, because of what the Word of God says. Ignorance brings indifference. Relationship with God's Word breeds zeal for it. And the psalmist says then next, it's a good thing for me to pour my zeal out upon, my energy and my effort out upon, because your promises have been well tried. Verse 140, your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. I love it. I love your word and all that it has done for me. This relationship of my obedience and God's faithfulness has produced this love in the disciple for the things of God. After all, as he says in verse 142, and again, I just, you know, it, it's as if the translation is trying to make sure we know what's going on here. Your righteousness is righteous forever. <laughs> it's not just you're righteous forever. Your righteousness is righteous forever. You are just and full of justice forever. Your justice is eternal. And this law, as far as the psalmist is concerned, 
is true. And when the psalmist, when Scripture uses the word true, the notion of truth, we have to make sure that as people of the book, as followers of Jesus Christ, we understand what that word means in this context. This is not some kind of sense of subjective truth. True for me, maybe not true for you. This is not some kind of sense of culturally bound truth that we in our culture have decided a set of things are true, but other people in other cultures have decided that other things are true. This is what several Christian writers often like to call capital T truth. It's just true for everybody all the time. So I love your word he says, I've tried it, I've been obedient to it, and it's come through every single time, so I know it is true. I can speak of it as true because I have experienced it as true as well. And inside of that context, verse 143 is the kind of verse that every now and then should just kind of give us pause so that we can slow down and figure out what's being said. Trouble and anguish have found me out. And we've read that kind of thing plenty inside of Psalm 119. If David is the author of this, we've even gone back and we've read some of those moments in David's life where plenty of trouble and anguish has found him. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments give me delight. What a shocking combination. That I can tell you all about my stresses, my anxieties, my troubles, the issues that press upon me. I don't know what to do about some of them, and I don't know what tomorrow holds. I can tell you about these things all day long. But let me also tell you how much I love the Word of God. That in it, even in that context, I have found delight in God Himself. This is quite the combination for the disciple. But guys, I think the more we understand how this works, we realize that it is only relationship with God that makes this kind of thing possible. If this life is all that there is, then trouble and anguish find me out, and that's it. There's really not much else to it. If my view of fulfillment or happiness is that everything's got to go my way in the end, then I'm really not going to find this kind of place. If I view personal fulfillment as my life's greatest achievement, then something like this, when trouble and anguish find me, is just not going to make sense to us. But if we discover what is possible with God even in the midst of everything that life brings, this kind of statement can become real. It can become actually an exciting possibility. It's difficult for me to express how many times I come across something like this or something, a passage like this is brought back to mind because of life, and it's attractive to me. I want this. Oftentimes, there's nothing I can do about the trouble and anguish that finds me, but what I can do is I can spend time finding God. What I can do is spend time hunting down delight and joy and peace and safety in the Word of God. It reminded me again of something else that the Apostle Paul said. It comes from Philippians chapter 4. Again, probably a familiar passage to some of us, but here's what Paul says to the Philippians while he's sitting in jail and writing them a letter about rejoicing. 
Chapter 4, verse 11, he says this. Not that I am speaking of being in need. He's thanking them for the gift that he's, that he's received from them. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In every situation, I have learned what it is to be content. Because oftentimes, either of those extremes, their effect on my life is to draw me away from God and into myself. And Paul says, every one of those extremes now just draw me closer to God. Wherever it is on that spectrum, I have learned this. Philippians 4.13 is a verse that is often misunderstood because it's pulled out of the context of what Paul says. That even though anguish and despair have found me out, in the Word of God I find delight. Even when I have nothing, I've learned how to be content. And into that context is where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all of these kinds of things that otherwise are nonsensical, that otherwise become impossible because God is the one who strengthens me. What a set of things to come in contact with. Oh, for these things to actually be a part of how I live my life. Instead of hunting for delight and contentment in other things that will fail me over and over, leave me hungry and thirsty over and over. What I want to know is God. What I want to know is God's Word. What I want to know is His presence. So the psalmist says, Lord, here's what I want. I want more understanding because it is my life. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. And this becomes our prayer as we close this morning that God would grant us understanding. Understanding of who He is and what His Word is like so that we may live in the kind of life that only God can give us. Understanding to know and realize the wonder of the Word of God in His presence where maybe we haven't felt that before. To understand the value of holy living. Let not iniquity rule over me. But instead, I want to live so that I can follow your precepts and your law. The kind of understanding of the perfect and unchanging righteousness of God and the effect that that has in our lives. And the kind of understanding or love of the Word of God that leads to zeal instead of indifference, that moves us, that motivates us draws us deeper into the presence of God, but then also pushes us out into our lives in our world full of the things and the call and the power of God. Let's pray.